on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. It's always good to take that extra second just to verify email addresses um, and just to keep an eye on things. As as Helen was referencing, one of the one of the cases sounds similar to what's called a man in the middle attack, where the, someone starts to get enough information that imitates being someone else, and they'll the address will be almost identical to the to the company's email address, but like a letter will be reversed. Um, or a couple letters will be reversed or a letter will be changed. So it'll look almost identical and they'll start acting as that person. They'll have the person's full signature and they'll, they'll get that information where they can finally get to the point where that financial transaction can happen or something along those lines. The money gets sent out to someone who's not the responsible party. So that's why it's good to, to always be careful and paying attention to what's being sent to you and who's sending it to you. You're hit with ransomware then there's going to be costs to investigate that to hire outside experts to figure out what happened to try and recover the data to restore it from backups which hopefully you have um, you may need to buy new hardware you know other other uh, you know, sort of hard out-of-pocket costs like that but the the bigger cost probably in the long run will be the um, business interruption of um, the lost uh, billables and you know, other other interruption to, you know, the course of your business being just from the downtime. Um, and then, you know, potentially the, the biggest risk of all, uh, biggest damage of all may be to your reputation and your ability to secure more work from your clients, existing and prospective clients in the future. That was BJ Moore and Helen Geib. And this is May the Record Reflect. Welcome to the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan, and today we're going to be talking about something that's often an afterthought in the modern law practice, cybersecurity, electronic client data protection, and the legal ethics implications thereof. With me today are Helen Geib and BJ Moore. Helen Geib is of counsel with the Indianapolis law firm of Hoover Hall Turner, where her practice is focused on electronic discovery and trial consulting. She is a member of the Executive Committee of eDiscovery, Governance, and Cybersecurity Section of the Indianapolis Bar Association, the Indianapolis Chapter Founder and a Board Member of Women in eDiscovery, and a Registered Patent Attorney with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. B.J. Moore is practically a member of the Nita family. He's the fellow we all call when our VPN isn't connecting or we've forgotten how to update our passwords in all the right places and now find ourselves locked out of our laptops. Or we did something really naughty, like clicked on a link in an email and infected our machine with malware. B.J. is one of the technologists at Right Hand IT, just up the road from Nita headquarters in Colorado. Before I bring on Helen and B.J. to chat, I want to fill in the background on cybersecurity because you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Aren't the bad guys too busy wreaking havoc on solar winds and the water supply in Florida to mess around with a little guy like me? Nope, they're not. You're actually not the small potatoes you think you are. What does make a law firm of any size so attractive to cyber criminals? Well, what doesn't? Think about it. It's one-stop shopping for all manner of personal information. 
your clients' names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, social security numbers, credit card numbers, bank account routing information, and you as your lawyer are required to retain all of those records for X number of years. That's a lengthy stretch of time that provides a nice steady source of sensitive data for those with ill intent. So that's just your client's personal information. What about the secrets of your clients who may be financial institutions or healthcare entities? Maybe your client's work involves the securities markets, patents and trademarks, national securities. How about the nature of your legal work itself, your actual work product, notes, briefs, correspondence, records, exhibits, all of your discovery in the hands of cyber criminals? If you're part of the 25% of American law practices the ABA and Department of Justice calculate have already suffered a data breach, unfortunately, you've learned this the hard way. For the other 75%, well, maybe it's a wake-up call. So what actually happens in a data hack? Typically, a criminal breaches your system and locks your data down behind encryption. They demand a ransom from you, you pay, They decrypt your data, you get it back, end of story. But now there's a new development called a maze attack. It's a different and more a malicious form of demand. They demand a ransom for you to regain your data. And once you've paid and you think, great, I'm in the clear, problem solved, they come back to you and demand a second ransom. The second ransom is to delete the data that they have exfiltrated or stolen from you. So they've got basically got you coming and going. That again is called a maze attack. That is the signature move of a cyber group called R-Evil. About a year ago, R-Evil launched a maze attack on the New York law firm of Grubman, Shires, Meisels, and Sachs, and they swiped almost 800 gigabytes of data. Grubman Shires is an entertainment law firm. They represent people like Lady Gaga, Nicki Minaj, J-Lo, Mariah Carey, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John, Madonna, Kardashians. I think you get the picture. Uh, Really big names. And they refused to pay the $21 million ransom that was demanded. And when they did that, our evil came back and they upped it to $42 million. And again, the law firm did not pay. And so they made good on their word. They started leaking data. They started with a file on Lady Gaga, which included her contracts and NDAs personal information like all of her home addresses, email addresses, personal phone numbers, correspondence, and the like. And even after that, the law firm refused to pay. They followed the FBI recommendation for dealing with cyber terrorists, which is to say, don't deal with them at all. Negotiating with cyber terrorists or paying their ransom are both acts that violate federal law. Grubman Shires recovered some of the data, but most of it remains at large today and is allegedly available for purchase on the dark web. Now, I know that this was quite a bit of background, but I hope it helps you see how serious the threat of hacking is to law firms. And with that, I've got to ask you, BJ Moore, how do hackers get into our computers in the first place? So there can be a variety of ways that people can gain access to systems. There's anywhere from brute force attacks on open remote ports to phishing, um, uh, more targeted that's called spear phishing, where they particularly target an individual that they know should have information. 
Um, there's drive-by attacks that can happen on websites. Um, and there's many, many other methods. The most popular ones are uh, spoofing and phishing that we've seen for, for a lot of companies. Phishing normally is you'll get an email asking you for some information um, and to respond to it, or they'll have sent you something with a link in it, which will go to a page they have set up. And that page will request uh, require you to have some kind of login information to get into there, and it'll usually be referenced most likely to a Microsoft Office account. Um, and so they'll have you go to log in, and as soon as you log in, they get your information. And what was the other one that you so you said spoofing? What is that? Uh, so spoofing is normally where if you when you look at your emails and they come in, they have a name on it. Um, like say if I had sent you an email, it would say BJ Moore, and then in in brackets behind it, it would show my ad email address. Um, what'll happen is it'll say BJ Moore, but it'll show a completely different address. But normally when you're corresponding with people on a regular basis or you're getting emails from from a large variety of people a lot of us just see that name um, and we don't tend to look at the email address itself or even on the preview it only shows the name it doesn't show the email address so you just look to see what they're asking for and then go ahead and respond um, we had one one client previously where someone had written an email and just blasted it across the entire organization but they were asking for like hey this is the president of the company, I need you to do me a favor. And somebody had actually written them back, asked them what they needed, and they wanted them to go out and buy gift cards, like iTunes, uh, things along those lines. Oh, yeah. We just got that this week. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and the kid, unfortunately, did go out and actually bought the cards and sent the information out. Um, so they, he, he got one of those sit-down talks about what to look for, what's proper. Um, the, the, the president's never going to ask you to do this. <laughs> It's things to look out for. And if, if you're never certain on an email, it's always best to start a new email and write the person and ask them about it. Never, never respond on that individual email. So how does going remote, as we've all had to do over this past year of the pandemic, change your security issues? Um, it gets it gets very interesting because you you go from just being dealing with a specific domain and computers inside that domain and everything locked behind a firewall to everyone having a variety of different machines um, and then what how they're gaining access to the system. Most of our clientele we we have set up to use VPNs to connect into their secure network, which helps mitigate issues. Um, so there's no open remote ports. Um, just to like an RDP server, which is for a long time was a, was an industry standard, but that's been going away. Um, so it's a big part of it is looking at individual um, computers and making sure that they've got at least the software firewall enabled, the VPN software is installed correctly and configured, um, and that they're able to access through that. And so a VPN is supposed to be more secure than... Yes, it's it's a virtual private network. It creates a tunnel directly from your machine to the firewall device that manages the VPN. Um, and so it, it's an encrypted tunnel itself at that point in time, instead of just going, just sending it out open over a network. So I've noticed on my own iPhone settings that there is um, a way for me to connect to the VPN through my phone. So I wonder if using a cell phone increases your vulnerability if you use them to VPN to the server at your office. From what I've seen with cell phones, they should not. Um, most cell phones, as long as they're fairly up to date within the last couple of years, and they're up to date on the security updates, updates that have been pushed out from the manufacturers for the operating systems are pretty secure. Um, I would actually recommend 
I wouldn't recommend VPNing straight in from a cell phone just because of accessibility issues and actually managing um, browsing through file structures and getting two files as needed. Um, but if you use your, your cell phone as a hotspot and connect VPN over a laptop, that way would be better. At the risk of sounding like a total ding dong, I've, I need to ask you this question. What about if you're using a phone app like um, Dropbox and then you open the desktop app or um, you access it through the website to get to Dropbox on your work laptop? Is there any way that hackers can make that leap from your phone to your laptop and thus your firm server through apps? Not that I'm personally aware of or even that I've been able to look up online. Um, the only thing I could come up with, at least for something as long as lines of Dropbox or another file sharing app, is if they were able to load something onto your phone into the app, which would then be synced to the cloud and then could be pulled down onto a computer, but it would still need to be manually ran to give them that kind of access. I can't come up with anything otherwise off the top of my head. Well, that's good news. One less thing to worry about. Is there one type of phone that's more secure than the other? Like the, uh, I've always heard that the iPhone is more secure than Android, but is that true? Uh, four or five years ago, I would have said yes for iPhone being more secure. Um, but as they've had a bigger market share, um, and this also applies to Mac laptops, is as there's been a bigger market share, more people have started to use them. They've been attacked more frequently because of that. Um, so that it, the biggest part, biggest part for a long time was not as many people had them. Um, both both marketplaces, uh, Google and Apple, do quite a bit to secure their platforms, um, and then. As long as you're downloading apps from their specific app stores, you're pretty safe because those all have to be vetted before they're actually published. Um, if you start sideloading third-party apps or other things, then you're obviously going to go down in security because they can't verify where all those come from. Okay, so that's a good tip to keep in mind. So let's get into malicious activities where you have been hacked and your data is being held for ransom. First of all, should you pay? The... The best recommendation is no, if at all possible. Even the FBI, as a very last resort, would ever recommend paying to a cyber criminal. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Cyber criminals are considered terrorists, so you're technically financing a terrorist organization, which is against federal, which is against federal law. Um, it's also because you don't want the you don't want it to be profitable for them, because as, as long as it's profitable, they're going to keep doing it. Um, so the more more people pay, the more they're going to want to do it. It's kind of on an honor system right now, where if your stuff is encrypted and they want you to pay, that the hope is that if you pay, they will unlock everything. There's no absolute guarantee of that either. Right. So I know we're not supposed to pay, but if you do pay, because you really need to get your your data back, if you pay once, does that send a signal to a hacker that, hey, I've got a sucker on the line and I'm going to keep coming back? Yeah, there's always that possibility um, because you have paid. There is a chance that you will you will pay again, um, especially if either you don't completely upgrade or change how all your stuff is kept so it is still vulnerable, or if they have left anything behind where they could still get back into the system that wasn't caught. So you mentioned updating your systems. That's some practical tips and information that I'm going to circle back to. 
after I talk to Helen, um, because there's a whole other side to this issue that we need to explore, and that is ethics and professional liability to the lawyer. So, Helen Geib, what are a lawyer's obligations around client data security? They are several and significant. So, of course, law firms are subject to the same laws that any business is with respect to data breach notification laws, um, HIPAA, other regulations. There's a variety patchwork of state and federal laws. But probably what what, uh, lawyers listening are really interested in is the ethical obligations, which apply specifically to us as professionals. And those those, um, are very significant and fall, uh, data breaches, other security incidents fall within four major ethical rules. Of course, first one that leaves to mind confidentiality, the obligation to protect confidentiality of our, our clients' information, privileged and and otherwise confidential. Also, the ethical rule of competence applies here. And I'd like to do a little tiny bit of history lesson here. The ABA in 2012 added um, a comment to Rule 1.1 to add a obligation to stay up-to-date, informed, competent in technology, uh, the technology that applies to the delivery of legal services. Uh, And clearly technology applies in so many different ways in any law practice, no matter what the practice area is. So security is a huge part of of competence now. Um, And almost almost all the states have adopted that amendment at this point. Um, So that that is a nearly universal requirement as well. Uh, And then rule of communication, our clients need to know enough to make informed decisions. So if a security incident affects their their case or affects our ability to represent them, we have to keep them informed about that. Uh, And then the fourth rule is the duty of supervision so that lawyers who have supervisory responsibilities, whether it's associate lawyers, staff, vendors, um, there's a, a responsibility to make sure that all of those people are also complying with the security responsibilities that we have. Yeah, serious stuff. Got a lot of considerations. Yes. What are what are some of the consequences for lawyers in the actual event of a data breach? Yes, those those really run the gamut. Um, of course, there's also a lot of overlap here with the consequences that other businesses would face. Um, for instance, if you're you're hit with ransomware, then there's going to be costs to investigate that, to hire outside experts, to figure out what happened, to try and recover the data, to restore it from backups, which hopefully you have. Um, you may need to buy new hardware. You know, other other uh, you know, sort of hard out of pocket costs like that. But the the bigger cost probably in the long run will be the um, business interruption of um, the lost uh, billables and, you know, other um, uh, other interruption to, you know, the course of your business being just from the downtime. Um, And then, you know, potentially the the biggest risk of all, uh, biggest damage of all may be to your reputation and your ability to secure more work from your clients, existing and prospective clients in the future. Right. Not not what you want to be known for. No, no, not at all. Is a lack of technical know-how or the actual event of a data breach in any way considered legal malpractice? 
So that's a really interesting question. And there's not very much case law on this yet. Um, there have been a few significant cases that have, have produced uh, some written decisions. And I would like to mention a few of those that, that uh, shed some light on this. Um, but I will note just sort of prefatory that it's kind of an unexplored area right now. There's definitely a, a significant risk of a malpractice claim being filed, um, but there's not a lot of case law to go by yet. Um, so the cases that there are, you know, have outsized importance when we're thinking about these issues. So the first one I'd like to mention is the um, Ballard versus Doran case. That uh, was um, uh, dates back to 2016. Uh, this case did settle soon after it was filed. Um, so we don't have a, a decision to go on, but the facts of the complaint are very interesting. The um, lawyer in that case was a real estate lawyer. And she was still using AOL email, um, which you know, sort of, I kind of like to hear what BJ thinks of that's so a lawyer using the AOL email in 2016. So her email was hacked into, um, and and it was a it was a targeted hack. Um, the it was the first step in cyber criminals perpetrating a sophisticated wire transfer fraud, and they they stole two million dollars from one of her clients that was you know, part of, of a real estate transaction that they had hired her to assist with. Uh, and and the, beyond the, um, the sort of uh, security failure 101 here, which, which is a clarion call for more education of lawyers you know, in basic security, I think what's really interesting about this case is the nature of the cyber attack. We have sometimes a tendency to think that, that this is a monolithic issue, that all, lawyer, all law firms are facing the same dangers. But um, actually, the risks do change a little bit depending on your practice area, just like businesses and in different industries face different risks of one over another. So for instance, a, you know, a hospital faces the risk of um, PII and PHI being stolen and all of the regulatory and data breach um, uh, damages that go along with that. And a law firm representing that hospital would have an outsized risk in the same way. Here, we had a real estate lawyer. Um, these wire transfer frauds are um, really target real estate transactions in the business world. Uh, and because of that, you know, her practice area, that became a heightened risk for her as well. And I think that's an interesting takeaway from this case. Yeah. Were there other cases that you, you found of interest? Yes. Yes. So there's... Um, the next one, and this case is pending. This is still active. It's in discovery now. Uh, it's called uh, Wengui versus Clark Hill. And last year, um, about a year ago, it survived a motion to dismiss. Uh, this case stemmed from an immigration matter, um, which I think is a little surprising until, until you learn that the uh, client is a very high profile Chinese dissident. He's now living in America. And he hired Clark Hill to help him file his uh, application for political asylum. And when he met with the law firm before entering into the engagement, he told them that he was a target of political uh, cyber attacks by the Chinese government and other state-sponsored um, terrorist attacks. Uh, and uh, the law firm, according to the allegations, of course, this case is still pending, but allegedly the law firm assured him that they would take special precautions with his data. Um, that included an assurance that they would not keep his personal information on the firm's file server. Um, but uh, they did. They did put it on the file server, and they emailed it around as well. 
um, and hackers who, yes, indeed. <laughs> so it, it all came true. All the all the forebodings came true. Um, hackers who everyone assumes, in both parties in the case, uh, assume were affiliated with the Chinese government, uh, did steal the his application for asylum as well as um, other personal information of him and his wife and published it on social media. Uh, and yes, indeed, there's a terrible image. Mean, it's a, it's a terrible situation, of course, for the client. Um, and this has turned into a lawsuit for legal malpractice. Uh, he also sued um, additional counts for breach of contract and breach of fiduciary duty. Um, and the, uh, another, besides just the, the sort of surprising um, aspect of a law firm being targeted in this kind of politically motivated cyber attack for a, an immigration matter, which you know, clearly took them by surprise, um, the the other thing to take from this is that they uh, at least purportedly made these promises about how they would treat his data and that they would keep it secure by doing specific actions like keeping it on a dedicated laptop and not on the server. Uh, and by failing to do that, it gave rise to this lawsuit. That is amazing in all the wrong ways. Incredible. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very interesting case, and it is currently um, in discovery. So we, we may yet see uh, more case law out of this case. Yeah, I will provide the links for these cases in the show notes. Are there any others that, that, that were interesting? There's one one other. Yes, yes, I, I, there's uh, one other that I'd like to mention, which um, interestingly is not a legal malpractice case. Um, and that's kind of what makes it interesting is so this case is uh, Hiscox Insurance Company versus Warden Greer. And this was um, another, uh, coincidentally, another data breach from 2016. Uh, this was a massive ransomware attack against the firm. And um, they, they followed the advice to not pay. Um, it was a you know, huge, huge uh, attack. Uh, a lot of data was exfiltrated, including data of the insurance company and its insureds, its clients. Um, Warren Greer did not tell its client, at least they did not tell Hiscox about this data breach. Hiscox found out on its own two years later, one of its employees discovered that um, insured's personal information was on the dark web. Uh, so sort of an adding insult to injury, you know, so there's a, there's some definite, um, you know, ethical, uh, ethical aspects to this of, you know, did they fulfill their, their duty to communicate? You know, beyond the the confidentiality responsibilities, um, but it's definitely uh, led to a lawsuit, which um, um, is also pending. And uh, uh, but what's interesting for our purposes is that Hiscox did not sue for legal malpractice. They did sue for um, negligence, breach of contract, and uh, breach of fiduciary duty, but not malpractice. And it it illustrates that while we think of malpractice being the risk. In fact, there are these other tort and contract claims that are, um, you know, are at issue as well. And even if the court wasn't friendly to the malpractice claim, doesn't mean that there aren't other causes of action that a client could pursue if they were affected by a data breach. Wow, that is fascinating stuff. Lots of good food for thought. Um, what counsel do we have coming from the ABA concerning cybersecurity and ethics, professional liabilities, and such? Um, I know that there is a formal opinion. It's formal opinion 483 issued by the ABA. And I wonder if you could touch on some of the highlights from that that we might need to understand. 
Yes, the, the ABA has issued several very helpful opinions in the area of cybersecurity, and I think this is the, the most interesting and, and I expect it to be quite influential. Uh, so the, they go through several, um, several main points and, and a, uh, it's a very, very, um, very instructive opinion. I definitely recommend that, that everyone read it. Uh, so they, they start by summarizing the ethical obligations and confidentiality, competence, supervision. But they take that then the next step to what does this mean in action? What are our obligations, uh, actionable obligations, not just what rules does this fall under? And that really makes this opinion very helpful as, as well as a, a kind of a wake up call. Uh, so it can say that um, in a general, uh, general sense, the action that's required is to act promptly and to take um, reasonable steps. So we need to um, uh, do what we can for security, you know, prevention to to prevent this kind of act. Um, you know, to have an incident response plan so that we're prepared in case there is a security incident. Uh, and then, um, if there is, or if we we suspect that there's a breach, or know that there's a breach, the next step is to carefully assess what has happened, both from a a technical standpoint. Um, and there we would. That they would uh, uh, counsel again in that um, um, what is the reasonable course of action? Probably bringing in an expert, bringing in someone who who really understands uh, the technical side to figure out what data has been accessed, and is that client data? Um, and, and another thing to to remember at, at this point is that law firms, of course, have a great deal of client data, which raises all these ethical concerns. But they do have employees and partners um, and uh, other people who are affected. So we have to remember the business and, and personal data of the law firm and, and the employees as well, in addition to right, in addition to the client data. Uh, but the, the focus of the ABA opinion is on the client data. And the next step um, in their uh, stage of assessment is, is this an incident that triggers notice obligations to clients because um, you know as bj was saying there's a great range of security incidents that can happen and they don't all result in a data breach or data exfiltration uh, so the, you know we need to decide or need to figure out with the help of those experts is this a matter that that did um, result in client data being compromised so if client data was compromised whether um, that might have been destroyed or exfiltrated, uh, and it was material um, information of the client, then the ABA opinion 43 does say that there is an obligation to inform that client, at least if it is a current client. They do draw an important distinction between responsibilities to current clients and former clients. Uh, and the, the other situation where notice would be required is if uh, the lawyer's ability to provide the legal services is significantly impaired. Um, so this could be in that ransomware situation where the law firm goes down and it just can't can't do its work. That could significantly harm the representation of the client. Maybe there's a court date tomorrow and the law firm doesn't have access to the information it needs to to handle that you know that hearing or what or meet that filing deadline. Um, so that would be another situation where uh, the ABA opinion would counsel that there is an obligation to provide notice 
even if the client data has not been stolen, um, the fact that the law firm is, is down, you know, can't function, would still impair the representation. It seems like this is certainly an evolving area of law that is developing at, um, at not quite at the same speed as technology itself. So it's up to us to stay, stay on top of it as much as we can. Do the model rules of professional conduct speak to cybersecurity? It sounds like uh, in a couple of areas, you've touched on things like competence and um, keeping your clients informed, but is there anything else in the model rules that we should know about? They don't directly speak to it. There's no model rule on data security, um, but we, we see that there are multiple ethics rules that implicate security. So that competence, confidentiality, communication, supervision, these are core ethical rules that govern all legal practice, uh, no matter what area of law we practice in, these are the fundamental rules. And cybersecurity, because our law practice, just this is the modern age, everyone's using electronics, even if it's only email, maybe you know, texting, you have your documents on a computer, not in a file cabinet. Uh, and of course, larger, more sophisticated, technologically sophisticated firms you know, are using cloud computing as well. Technology is woven into everything we do as lawyers today. So all of these rules in, in that sense implicate cybersecurity now. Is there any other authority that we should look to for guidance on our obligations or is, is that just about it, do you think? You should always, I always counsel um, checking your own state's ethical opinions. Uh, these, the uh, nuances do vary state to state and a number of states have given ethical ethics opinions, formal opinions on cloud computing um, and some on other aspects of lawyers using technology like remote working. Uh, so there's some good resources there in the discussions of of cloud computing, uh, which basically the boils down to, and this is the consensus of all the opinions I've looked at, that you can do it, that's fine, as long as you take it seriously and practice the same level of care in uh, securing the data as you would if you had it on your own computer or your own file server. So uh, we will include in the show notes uh, links to all of these different things that we've been discussing. I want to talk a little bit about general liability insurance. Does that typically cover loss in malicious cyber events? So this is also a, um, a developing area. There's a, um, been a lot of litigation in this area, typically not in the law firm context, but more generally. Um, generally, general li uh, liability insurance does not cover cyber liability, and that has led to the rise of a, a whole insurance industry around cyber insurance policies instead. Uh-huh. Okay. Do you know what is covered in cyber insurance coverage? So it varies a lot. Um, this I, Everyone's familiar with the, the old saying, you know, the lawyer uh, who has himself uh, or represents himself has a fool for a client. So I would say here, I'm not an insurance broker. I highly recommend that you find an insurance broker who really understands cyber insurance policies um, because everything I've read says that they vary a great deal and it's important to have someone who really understands all the exclusions that can apply to look at it for uh, look at it for you and help you negotiate what you need. Um, generally speaking, uh, you can get policies that will cover all of those different areas of loss that, that we talked about earlier. So the you know replacement costs, 
for damaged systems, um, the cost of the outside experts. Uh, if you're required to comply with data breach notification laws, there are costs associated with that, there are insurance policies that cover that, uh, and the business interruption costs as well. Um, if Yes, yeah, so if, if the law firm is sued for legal malpractice, that's where you would still turn to your professional liability insurance. But for any of these other costs, you would look to that cyber insurance policy. Okay, so good to know that it's out there. So it's all pretty scary stuff. So I think we need to close on a happy note. So let's go back to BJ and talk about solutions. BJ, what are some of the basic preventative measures that all law firms should be taking to defend themselves then against cyber incursions? Uh, some of the basics are, if you're using any anything for remote work, make sure that there's a usually a secure way to connect either VPN or if you're using a remote server, um, some way to minimize someone just getting in. Uh, another thing is training for end users. Um, big thing is is looking for phishing or spoofing emails. Um, and there's different companies that offer services for that. I think even, even Google has a basic one that you can go through and it's got five or six examples um, that you can run through just to get an idea. And if possible, it's always good to also include um, either two-factor authentication or what they call multi-factor authentication now. And that just helps in the event where you did get hit by a phishing attack and you put your information in somewhere, they wouldn't just be able to log straight into your email because it would send you a notification. Where you oh, so that's where you get a text and you enter six digits and... Or you use a multi, an MFA app like Google Authenticator or something like that that has a rotating uh, set of six digits that changes every 30 seconds or every minute. Um, and you have to put that in when you log in. So that can definitely help as well. Um, another thing is is be vigilant um, and paranoid about pretty much anything you receive. It's always good to take that extra second just to verify email addresses um, and just to keep an eye on things. As as Helen was referencing, one of the one of the cases sounds similar to what's called a man in the middle attack, where the, someone starts to get enough information then imitates being someone else. And they'll the address will be almost identical to the to the company's email address, but like a letter will be reversed, um, or a couple letters will be reversed, or a letter will be changed, so it'll look almost identical. And they'll start acting as that person. They'll have the person's full signature, and they'll they'll get that information where they can finally get to the point where that financial transaction can happen, or something along those lines. The money gets sent out to someone who's not the responsible party. So that's why it's good to to always be careful and paying attention to what's being sent to you and who's sending it to you. Um, another thing they can also do, especially if they have physical servers, is always have good, good data backups of all your information. So if you, if you do get hit by a ransomware and it does fully lock everything up, instead of having to pay, either have a system where you can virtually stand up the server and get access to the information and then bare metal restore it back to the hardware, um, or at least be able to do a bare metal restore and get all the files back into place where they're still available um, without having to pay that ransom. But you do always, in the event anything ever happens, you do want to make sure you inform your local FBI office. And there's always, um, there's the ICC3 website you can go to and submit, a, and submit information. It's also very good to be aware of what your local state's requirements for notification of breaches are. Um, that's why I was, the other case you mentioned where they hadn't, 
notified them ever was interesting. Um, and I wonder what their local state requirements were for notification. And that may, may be part of why it's not technically a malpractice. Yeah, that was uh, shocking that, that that would have happened and they did not tell their clients at all. Yes, and, and uh, to BJ's point, um, that actually factored into the case that part of Hiscox's um, uh, insurance company's claim for damages was that it had not been able to comply with its breach notification responsibilities to its insureds um, because its law firm had not notified it of the breach. So that uh, the intersection of um, ethics and breach notification laws and, you know, legal malpractice and breach of contract, it all comes together in that one case. And again, that case and some of the the source resources that BJ mentioned, check the show notes. We've got links for you. BJ, what are some of the steps that we should take if all the measures that you've recommended have failed and we've managed to be breached anyway? What should we do? Uh, biggest thing is, personally, if you, re- if you recognize it, notify management, notify whoever your IT is so that they can get onto what is going on and try to mitigate as much as possible from there. Um, if you are the one obviously in charge of all that, you want to make sure that you notify the FBI and start taking steps to mitigate anything that can happen in the future to prevent further access um, and to go from there. Also, if you do have cyber insurance to reach out to your cyber insurance company, they'll usually have a list of preferred vendors they'll recommend for um, the mitigation process and to go through and help out. Um, they'll use things, um, Kroll, um, there's a few others out there as well that do a really good job and they have more advanced tools um, that they'll help get in, help whoever you're working with get installed and get everything in place and go through and try to mitigate as much as possible. Um, and usually they'll also have companies they'll work with that can reach out to the uh, the hacker themselves to try to fish them along and get more information about what they actually took while they're still investigating to keep them from immediately releasing inf- any information or keep them on the line for a little while um, while that mitigation and everything is looked into. And then also to involve, like I said, the FBI to make sure they're aware. And especially if it's a large breach, they have their own, their own tools they can help hopefully bring along as well. So um, you talked about the bare minimum that a law firm should be doing. So now I want to ask you to imagine that you have been hired by a law firm that has absolutely unlimited resources for cybersecurity. So as some kind of dream wish tips, um, what cutting edge top of the line practices would be on your wish list to implement for that law firm? It would really depend on how over the top you want to go. Hey, the sky's the limit. You definitely want to make sure you have dedicated work machines so you're not doing, um, especially with remote right now, where you're not having people who have home machines that they're using for work purposes. Um, and who knows who all, who all is getting onto that in a family environment. Um, so you're having your dedicated machine. You can either have a software or hardware firewall in place for it. Um, obviously, the hardware firewall in place at the firm itself. The, the servers with all full backups. Um, the only other thing you can do, depending on how important the client data is, um, if you really want to go over the top, you can get you can do what's called airspacing, um, and basically that's uh, all the information, all the vital information is on a specific server that there's no outside access to. If you remember Mission Impossible, 
um, where they're breaking into the facility with the computer in the one room. That's an airspace computer. Okay. Uh, or an airspace database. So the only way you can physically access it is, or the only way to access it is to physically access it. Ah, fascinating. Um, which is really overkill for a lot of things. <laughs> and then you have to you have to figure out how to get the data on there and update it and, and remove it as needed for different things. But it almost sounds like the uh, the one case with the uh, immigrant was something they should have been looking more towards. Yeah. That does sound secure, but it it also sounds like it's got its own set of complications to deal with. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, any last words before I launch into our signature sign-off question? Um, Since you did mention the AOL email, Uh I would recommend getting separate business emails. Um, And if you are on an older older platform, it might be time to look to upgrading to something newer. Um, either through Gmail as a work email or Office 365 or something along those lines, just because they have more uh, security put in place and they're more, some of their things are more business oriented. Okay, great. What about you, Helen? Any last words? Yeah, so I'd like to uh, end with um, technology competence that uh, there's a general recognition that um, there's two pieces to tech competence for lawyers. Uh, one is education and lawyers raising the level of their own understanding of security you know, using basic security practices but the other is to recognize the limits of our own knowledge and to associate with experts and people who really understand this area so that they can um, help us in in the you know areas that we didn't go to law school for all right excellent thank you so much for giving us all of this information and now it is time for your little reward which is my question about travel in a post covid world after you've seen family members and friends and all the people that you've missed during this past year of the pandemic, where in the world would you like to take a dream trip? And I will start with you, Helen. Mm-hmm. I would like to go to the Austrian Alps where I can go hiking during the day. And in the evening, I can drink uh, elderflower wine spritzes. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is in fact a vacation that I hoped to take last year. Uh, to have, I had to postpone uh, so that that is my dream trip that I'm eagerly awaiting. Uh, you're still thinking about it. Okay. Yeah. How about you, BJ? Uh, I know me and my wife would love to go on a trip to Ireland and Scotland and see all the sites and do a small tour of some of the distilleries out there. Awesome. <laughs> and actually taste the scotch from where it's fresh. Yeah. Well, I'm Irish. I've been to Ireland um, four or five times now, and it is gorgeous, beautiful, amazing, warm, wonderful people. I just adore it. So I'll see you there, BJ. So, Helen and BJ, thank you once again for coming onto the podcast to share with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I'm glad to help educate people and and get some more information out there. It really is such an important issue. And with the legal industry traditionally on the lag with technology, I guarantee this episode will make a difference in the lives and livelihoods of listeners who have turned in. It may even be a real wake-up call for law firms to take data security very seriously. And I'm grateful that you made the time to spend with me and share what you know. I want to take a moment to thank all those who have donated to the NIDA Foundation in the last few months. As you no doubt know by now, it's NIDA's 50th year. And since 2003, the NIDA Foundation has provided much-needed scholarships for lawyers who otherwise would not be able to attend a NIDA program. Our criteria to qualify for a scholarship include demonstrating a commitment to serve underrepresented populations, 
working at a nonprofit or legal aid office, or demonstrating financial need. Last year, the NIDA Foundation was able to award scholarships to two out of every three lawyers who requested one. Every dollar we receive brings us that much closer to reaching our goal of 100% fulfillment. To learn more about the NIDA Foundation, make a donation, or maybe even apply for a scholarship yourself, please visit nita.org forward slash foundation. We'll be back next month with another episode of May the Record Reflect, where I'll be bringing you more actionable intelligence for your trial practice. Catch us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Overcast, or you can listen on our website at nita.org forward slash podcasts. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community. Thank you.